Welcome to the Dev Ready Podcast, where we're helping non-techs build better tech. Uh, today, we're joined by Mark Lovey. He is the um, founder owner of BioIngenuity, um, a consulting business in the area of medtech and also been a part of a number of medtech startups. And I want to bring Mark on today just to talk a little bit about his journey in the world of startup, especially in the medtech space, and some of the learnings he's had through that journey. Mark, thank you for joining us. Well, thanks very much, Andrew, for having me on the show, and Anthony as well. It's a pleasure yep. to be here. Welcome aboard. Welcome aboard. And uh, he would sound like he's from the other side of the world, but uh, Mark is now living in sunny Brizzy. Um, I think you met your wife and moved down here, from what I recall from the last chat. I did, yeah. So I'm originally yeah. actually from outside of Boston, and I've been uh, in Brisbane off and on since 2015 and, and uh, got charmed by uh, a Brisbaneite. So now I've been living here for the past couple of years. Uh, brilliant. Mark, tell the audience a little bit about your background and uh, history, uh, especially in the space of how it's led to where you are today. Sure. So I've actually uh, spent my entire career in uh, the medical device sector, the bulk of my career in the medical device sector. Um, originally, as a biomedical engineer, um, studying in New York State, uh, I spent three years working in Silicon Valley uh, within with cardiovascular products. Um, actually started my career doing research, undergraduate research at the Cleveland Clinic for uh, cardiovascular um, implanted products. Um, I spent about seven years in Boston uh, preparing to pursue medicine uh, as a career rather than uh, rather than business. But during that time, I worked as a as an engineer, uh, project manager, um, uh, pursued a number of different industry certifications, and did my pre med requirements uh, at Harvard Night School. And uh, ultimately, I was actually able to, to uh, uh, get accepted into medical school in Brisbane at the University of Queensland uh, as part of a hybrid program that I did two years in Brisbane, uh, my preclinical years, and then I did my clinical rotations in New Orleans, Louisiana. So towards the end of my medical school journey, I actually decided to um, not pursue additional clinical training and instead rolled up a lot of my experience into my own consulting business, which is what Bioingenuity is, a strategic healthcare and biotech consulting company. Uh, and since 2018, I have been doing uh, really a number of different consulting projects with clients as large as Johnson & Johnson, but also uh, as small as emerging um, med tech companies in the digital health space predominantly. Interesting. What what? Fascinating story around your background. What led you into the engineering product space? What did you find interesting about that? Um, obviously, there was some sort of draw to that area. Yeah. So, look, I think, um, you know, as you get through your journey of science, you sort of make decisions about where you want to sit within the applied science um, spectrum. And I started off actually as a physics major and was was about as far away from being applied as possible. Um I think that a lot of what I found, um, so I did undergraduate research in, in, in cardiovascular uh, heart valves, and I was able to sort of parlay that into uh, an industry job supporting pacemakers and defibrillators. And while supporting those products as an engineer uh, in California, I was able to actually see the products implanted, um, participate in uh, ICD or um, uh, defibrillator implants um, throughout the US and kind of fell in love with the practical side of uh, engineering and product design and, and product implementation and sales. Um, so I think that 
for me, it was a good mix of being able to use really sound fundamentals in a scientific discipline, such as engineering, biomedical engineering, um, but then having that kind of translate into the real world and not get lost in, you know, pure research and so on um, to actually feel the, the kind of tangible aspects of it. Um, and it so is, since is that rewarding. time, yeah, yeah I, th I think it's really rewarding. And I think, mm -hmm. you know, it's all about kind of what drives you as an individual, but for me in particular, um, the ability to see the end effect of the work is, is really important. Mm -hmm. Yeah, no, I totally get, get that. Um, Anthony, probably in the same boat over there. Yeah, it always helps when you can actually see the result of what you're trying to do. Mm. You write code, or, or you've been writing code for a long time, and you don't generally see what you create. Yeah, I That's think it's important to get different. that that feedback right away, um, <laughs> and just to just to know what you're doing that it's actually it exists in the real world. It's not just going to get yeah. lost on some shelf. Yeah. The part yeah. of your journey, Mark. What's one of the what's a standout project for you that um, you'd say you're probably the most passionate about when you were involved in it? Yeah, listen, I've had a few. Um, I think that. The first uh, startup that I was in since uh, after, shortly after I started Bioingenuity uh, was actually a medical imaging startup. And I consider that the most interesting four-year-long conversation that I had. Um, ultimately, that startup was not successful, and there were plenty of, re plenty of lessons to learn um, from why it wasn't successful. But um, entering into the digital health uh, market in 2018... And, and even now, digital health is so malleable. The field itself is literally changing month to month and, and quarter mm -hmm. to quarter. Um, so entering into that field with a number of um, highly accomplished uh, healthcare professionals with, you know, different backgrounds and expertise, and then creating uh, almost a think tank-like environment of what could potentially um, what could potentially be created by leveraging traditional technology, but spinning it up within a, a more innovative um, application and thinking about how we could potentially change uh, the practice of medicine, the practice of healthcare, um, and, and just all the, all the challenges that came with that. Uh, to me, it was, it was probably the most engaging thing that I've done to, to really synthesize a lot of the knowledge um, mm -hmm. that I've, knowledge and experience. Uh, and to do that within a venture um, where you're a major stakeholder is uh, it's a really exciting, um, really exciting initiative. And I, I think that that's part of what makes uh, working in startups actually so, so appealing. It's appealing because you're covering all, all bases. You're not just looking at a product design, you're looking at end to end, um, how you might impact the, the industry, the market, how you sell it, how you communicate it, how you deliver more value. There's quite a bit within the world of startup. And yeah. Working with those stakeholders as well. I mean, you could just be working with a lead of your team and no one else. That's exactly right. So I think, you know, I've, and I've worked for some of the large, I've, I've done uh, two tours at Johnson and Johnson and, and, you know, largest medical mm -hmm. products country uh, company in the world and, and uh, a number of other, you know, fortune 500 companies that uh, in, in many cases, you're, you know, you're a cog within that machine, but you go to your, your job, you kind of know, learn the parameters of your job and, and then you, you sort of put yourself um, you're not fully engaged as, as much as I think you are in a, in a small shop. And, you know, with a startup, there are so many problems that, um, Anthony, like you're saying, you know, directly can impact stakeholders or, or even customers, but also there's sort of day-to-day -day problems that you just have to, you just have to get things done. And it's, um, it's, it's actually a really, uh, just exciting place to, to work all around. Yeah, I think the ability to move quickly as well probably helps and adds to that excitement because it's not, it has to go up three levels of the, the food chain and, I get questions have to get asked, proposals have to get created. You can just make the decision and jump with it. 
That's right. So I, you know, I've lived lived the pain of having uh, something that should take five minutes to, to be approved. You know, take six weeks of of going around and around. Um, and after a while, you just you know you lose you lose your appetite for it. So working in a lean environment, uh, sitting across the table, and you know being trusted to have the accountability and, and the ownership of of your end of the business is uh, it's it's a pretty good way to pretty good way to to roll. You mind if we dig into that a little bit, Mark? You mentioned um, obviously. You were there for four years. You you, yep. you titled it as failed. Um, what does that mean to you? So, what were some of the things that um, you started? What was the vision of the business as it started, and where did you end up four years down the track? Sure. So the business was. Uh, I, I came in not as a co-founder, but as an early early team member. Mm-hmm. Uh, the the business had been founded already uh, a couple of years before I joined with the vision of actually taking MRI technology and um, taking it from sort of a, a back-end uh, confirmatory test that you would use to diagnose problems and to actually leverage some of the power of medical imaging to push it uh, more into an upstream role where it could actually potentially have prognostic um, potential. So using MRI almost proactively. Now, there's a lot of um, traditional clinicians that will tell you a lot of reasons why you shouldn't do that, and uh, and that's fine. But I think part of what we were leveraging or trying to leverage was um, just the amount of data that's available in an MRI and mm-hmm. how, uh, how much of that data is not uh, currently leveraged within clinical practice. So um, I came in initially actually as a chief medical officer and then um, early on felt that we needed to have some uh, startup fundamentals and solidify just the corporatization of the business itself. So things that often kind of get a bad rep, but mission, vision, and values, just pulling the group together and really trying to figure out what are we trying to do with this uh, initiative and this venture and, and who are we? Um, and creating the vision, the common vision of, of what the business was all about. Those are some early kind of, you know, lessons that we, we, uh, we all built together. Uh, I ended up moving into the chief operating officer role for the business, um, and and I actually liked that that operational mindset. I'm a bit of a nuts and bolts guy, so I mentioned yep. just the small, you know, the small problems that need to be solved, as well as the big macro problems of where the business is heading and monetization and profitability and so on. Um, so, you know, the 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 at the end of the day, and and you know, there's a lot of um, there's a lot that can be pulled apart, but um, startup fundamentals, product market fit, what problem are you really trying to solve? Who is your customer? How are you serving your customer? Um, you know, how well does your does your product actually or service actually solve the problem that you're going after? Um, you know, how do you monetize that into a sustainable business model? Those are the types of things that um, any startup will encounter. I think in the digital health space, you have added complexity with how you interact with the existing healthcare system, certainly in the United States, uh, but even globally. And then you also have additional complexity with data and validating uh, product models. And so there's a lot of digital health companies that promise a lot of things, but when you, when you pull the veneer of what they're, what they're saying back, they really don't have um, as much evidence as, as you might hope for. And so uh, I think we've, we kind of fell into that bucket and, and encountered some challenges. Mm-hmm. Did, did you get to a point of um, being able to establish product, generate some value? Where did you get to in the in the line of your development of product? 
Yeah. So, you know, uh, we actually had, we were, um, cash flow positive. We were debt free, uh, between we had revenue between 250 K and a million dollars. Uh, mm -hmm. we're still early on. We actually were avoiding actively and deliberately, um, external financing. And so that's a whole other kind of separate, um, strategy. And, and although most people think you need to raise capital, you don't necessarily need to, um, though the jury's out, whether it may have benefited us in the long run or not, uh, to maybe give us a little more run runway. Um, so we did, we had a functional business. We were able to actually secure, um, some, some clients that weren't really serving at the core of what the vision of the business was, but was generating some cash flow to keep everybody, um, at the table and engaged. Um, okay. we had some high level discussions with New York state department of health and, um, mm -hmm. a lot of industry partners, um, had quite a bit of visibility on, on, um, actually creating our, our product and, and uh, some of the direct-to-consumer reports that we were trying to create. And um, really, we're trying to capture a large segment of the entire value stream. Uh, so again, in our case, we had to look at how to actually access MRI machines and then how to generate reports and how to have customers that would potentially um, offer those reports to their to their patients and so on. So there, it was a pretty complex um approach. But ultimately, we were able to uh, sustain for a number of years. I think we had a, uh, we were refining the product market fit. And mm -hmm. I think ultimately, what, what caused us to, to fail was not necessarily the technology was not necessarily who we had in the room. I think it was just a matter of the dynamics of, um, you know, not having enough cash flow and, and uh, kind of running out of puff. And, and so I think, you know, there's volumes about why startups fail and, and it's not because they run out of uh, cash or, or um, you know, or time. It's just that, you know, sometimes founders run out of energy. And I, I certainly think that we fell into that bucket. It can be a, a, an all-consuming space to work in. Like you said, when you're digging in the world of startup, it becomes a 24-7 job. Even when you're sleeping, you're thinking about how you might solve X, Y, Z. So, um I understand the fact of, yeah, we can run out of puff. completely agree with that. I think um, as you've been in the world of a business startup, you go through different moments of energy um, where sometimes you're on a really good win and then other times you just probably need a bit of a break and unwind. The only challenge in startup, if you're cash flow poor, chasing your tail 24-7 and you run out of puff at the wrong time, um, that's where maybe in a little bit extra runway funding or time to move on may come in, come into it. Couldn't, couldn't agree more with that. And I think, um, you know, the question is how long do you want to bootstrap as a startup? And, and so yeah. there's always, there's always value to trying to build your business, I think, as much as you can on your own before accepting mm -hmm. external help. But then there yes. does come that point where you're really just working, you're expelling energy that you don't need to, and, and the business needs to move on to the next phase mm -hmm. of growth. Otherwise it starts to kind of contract. And, mm -hmm. um, I do agree with you. I think if you're, you know, if you're an obsessive person or you're, you're passionate about what you're doing, that 24-7, you know, being consumed by the business, it's part of what makes it, you know, unlike any other, um, any other experience. Uh, but you're right, there's certainly a detrimental piece to it uh, after a while if you're not moving in the right direction. You know, I think you need that momentum and you need that continuous something, what it might be growth, whether it be additional value from customers you're adding whether it be finding new opportunities that you can build your product on and you open up more markets. I think 
um, in the end, it can be a bit of momentum training. I don't know if you follow a bit of sport, but as you get a bit of momentum in any sport, um, it can kick along pretty quickly. When momentum stops and it's on the other side of the fence, it can be a little bit difficult to pick up at times. So um, like anything, it can be a bit of momentum game as well. Yeah, see so some of those outcomes and mm. what you're working towards. If you mm-hmm. lose that, then you yes. lose the motivation, not just the momentum. Mm-hmm. Mm. That's yeah, that's right. And that goes back to what mm-hmm. we were saying before about mm-hmm. having, you know, practical goals and seeing the value of your work. And and yeah, if you're if you're constantly, you know, butting your head against the wall, um, eventually that gets old. And and you know, the startup experience is a roller coaster, right? You you have these wins that are amazing. You think that the the margin between being wildly successful and failing is so is so thin that you know, you think that you're, I mean, there were, there were moments where we had active purchase orders that I was actively preparing to, um, you know, have a brand new lifestyle overnight. And then, (laughs) you know, the same week I was wondering how we're going to keep the lights on. So that the extremes of, of higher highs and lower lows are there. Um, Mm -hmm. and, and, you know, from my perspective, coming from some, an endeavor like medicine, which is also extreme, it's, it's all consuming in a, in a, in a physical way as well. Um, but, but, you know, at pursuing medical training, to some extent, it's a little bit of a safer bet, right? If you just keep putting in the work, eventually you will, you will, you know, turn into a, a, an attending physician and you, you probably have a pretty good job on the other end that pays well and so on. So it's almost a secure pursuit. Uh, myself, I'm a bit of a risk junkie and I, I like to kind of, you know, get <laughs> to the, get to the, generally is. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yeah, I think just kind of letting it ride and, 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 um, you know, taking, I've always taken risks, even in my personal life. And I, I think, um, you know, if that, that, that's for me, why innovation is, is the way to stay. Anyone that's sort of, um, entertaining or in the world of medical, what's there's really different challenges beyond just building technology, right? Getting access to the data that you're trying to get access to, storage of the data, a lot more complexities around legislation, around how this all comes together. Do you run into any roadblocks in terms of what you're doing from that perspective as well? Yeah, absolutely. So there's, yeah. so there's, you know, there's a lot there. Um, there's, Governance and governance of uh, data can change from certainly does change from country to country. It, ch- it can change from state to state, and it do- as it does in Australia. Um, if you if you actually secure and obtain data, and then need to migrate it into a different jurisdiction, you have to be very mindful of that. There's privacy and security, um, patient consent. Ultimately, patients own their data, and they as as they rightfully should. Um, and then you know working with the clinical community. It's really, again, within healthcare, within digital health, there's so, particularly in digital health, there's so much hype now and there's so little that's actually solidified about it that um, unless you're demonstrating real world clinical value, you're actually moving the needle on outcomes for your patients or you're moving the financial needle for, for systems where it just makes sense for them. Uh, they can't look away from what you're doing. You know, it's a, it's a, bit, of a, a bit of a challenge to try to um, corral folks to, to see the value in what you're doing. And data is ultimately the currency that you operate in. And if you don't have data, you're not going to go very far. And if you do have data, but that data is not validated, uh, mm-hmm. meaning, you know, it made extremely robust and, and prove out your, your theories and so on and, and, um, and, and tested um, again, you're going to, you're going to have a hard time making a compelling case that your solution is better than the existing status quo or other solutions out there. You can't just say you're better. You have to actually prove it in this sense. Mm-hmm. 
as opposed to just marketing talk. That, that's right. And, I, and there's, so there's certainly regulations that are there in place to protect patients and protect consumers. And we all need those, right? You don't want, yeah, it's correct. you don't want to take, take an ibuprofen that, that hasn't been vetted thoroughly by um, evidence, but um, you know, even, even in exploring direct to consumer models, um, it's not like you're building an, an, uh, a SaaS app on your phone and you can just push something out in the market and let your customers sort of determine how your product development goes. Um, it's, it's actually the opposite. You almost need to have a lot up front that demonstrates your value before you even consider pushing it out in the market. And that makes obviously the whole proposition a lot more risky, right? Um, the advantage of being in that a model where you have less legislate, legislation, risk, governance components, um, you can push out a little MVP, get feedback, iterate, iterate, iterate. Um, in the world of the type of data you're playing in, you need that security overlay, you need all these different metrics that you may not need in a little startup space that's consumer focused. So that probably puts a another a few levels of challenges in front of you as you go into this pursuit it does make it safer for the consumer though they know they're yeah. not going to be scammed or ripped off the product will deliver what oh, it no, should I agree be with that. Yeah. as opposed to the mm -hmm. 3000 crms <laughs> that <laughs> all do the same thing but might, yeah. none might do anything yes. that's yeah that's exactly right i think the challenge is if you're on the, the the business ownership side of things you know move fast and break things doesn't really work in healthcare uh, mm. and it shouldn't necessarily work and and so mm -hmm. Yeah, there's a lot more, um, you know, meticulous and deliberate uh, nature of, of what you're designing um, to get there. And um, just from a, 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 a speed of growth perspective, it can certainly slow down your growth. So you may want to get to another part, another phase of growth, but you haven't solved fundamental, you know, challenges to mm. the business. Okay. In terms of um, the business itself, when did you move on? Was it a few years ago now, was it roughly? Uh, this was, uh, I don't even know what year we're in. Actually, it was, it was technically, I think, officially earlier, earlier this year, uh, at the beginning okay. of the year. Yeah. And so we, yeah. we had had kind of, uh, you know, how, a, how a startup fails. I'm sure you could have a whole segment on, on that. You know, some people just cut the head off and, and that's it. Some people mm. kind of do the death roll for a few months and, and you hope that you can resurrect it. Um, yes. so we kept, kept fighting to the end to kind of explore new models, but ultimately I don't think that, mm -hmm. um, it's part of it actually on my end is that I, I now have an, I have an 18 month old daughter. So I just ran out of patience. You know, I can mm -hmm. still be fighting, um, mm. to, 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 I loved working with the, the crew that I was working with, um, <laughs> and, uh, would love to kind of actually keep working with them, but I just, I don't, I can't justify the hours and the time anymore if I don't see the, the, frankly, the financial and also just the, the end effect, um, in the, in the world. So, yeah, my appetite for for not risk, uh, but my appetite for uh, the sweat equity went down quite a bit, and um, and so I've switched into a, kind of a new venture, more in robotics, actually, that I think has a a good chance of of going somewhere. In terms of the end of that startup, is that completely shut down, wound down, or is it sort of in ghost mode where it's some things happening, but um, there's people hopeful it may come back. You know, I, I think uh, it's probably a little bit of the latter. Um, I mean, you never know where these things are going to go and how the markets will shift as well. So mm -hmm. if I got a call tomorrow, I mean, who knows? I would I would, I would entertain it. But, um, you know, and I, it's because I believed in what we we're doing. And, and mm -hmm. I, you know, I still think that there's there's opportunities to 
actually move the needle in healthcare and change things for the better. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, it's more, it's more finding its legs. And I think most of the founders have kind of moved, the, the two founders have moved on. And I think some of the team has kind of moved on to other, other, other ventures. Yeah. So the likelihood uh, of it picking up again is going to be very minimal, but um, yeah, very minimal. It's, it's not a fun thing, but it's also, what did, what did it teach you? So what are some of the things you learned through that experience? Uh, certainly, um, the amount of time I put in, uh, to that company and to not have it, uh, go to where I knew it had the potential to go. It's something that, to be honest with you, I still struggle with. It was a four-year window of my life. Um, you know, particularly leaving clinical training and, and, and throwing myself fully into a business that, um, failed, I think was, um, you know, it's something that I think, okay, well, could I have used that time differently? What, what I did get from that four years is a tremendous amount of uh, knowledge and um, management skill and stakeholder engagement and just wisdom. Um, and so I would not change that for, for anything. And I actually think that I learned, arguably, I learned more in those four years than I think I might have even if I went to residency. And there's probably any physicians listening would probably shaking their head right now, but, um, you know, it learned, it, you know, I think that it taught me a lot of practical lessons in, um, what not to do in a business, um, how to conduct things differently. It taught me how to handle failure, outright failure, uh, of a business. Um, it taught me what to look out for in a, in a future, uh, business partner that I look, I look out or would potentially work with. And, um, also taught me that, you know, I would do it again for the right, the right, um, set of, uh, you know, ingredients. And I, I think that it's definitely a space that I'm interested in continuing to explore. So, yeah, I'm, I'm still, I'm still processing it, believe it or not. And I think yeah. that I probably will for years to come. Oh, we do. I think it's about, but also looking forward to, right. We can also, we can live in the past, um, that is done, but yeah, I think some of the things you can take from it, are the experience that you've learned through it. Um, you mentioned a couple of things around what to look for in a, in a partner. If you were to pick a business partner again or some partners again, what sort of qualities would you uh, entertain jumping on the bandwagon again and going down that startup train with? Somebody who's failed in a startup, I think is actually <laughs> high in that list, right? I yeah. think, I think, I think, yeah. you know, you know, you've learned on your own skin yeah. what not to do. Yeah. And yeah. I think that's the reason why the most successful entrepreneurs are older mm. and they're in their forties and, and mm. beyond. Um, so that's actually something I, you know, I have considered um, serial entrepreneurship, uh, failure as a mo- model for success. I mean, that's, I think that's definitely part of the journey. Mm. Um, but, you know, if, other than that, sound fundamentals, understanding of the vision, full commitment to the vision of what you're trying mm-hmm. to do, um, practical skills of how to actually implement and achieve the vision, being well connected, um, I think is important, well networked within your particular vertical um, the ability to procure funds is certainly important. Just the, where you sit within your philosophy of how and when to raise capital or whether you want to at all. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah, I think it's kind of a mix of like uh, experience and then just mm. vision and practical skills. Um, and I, you know, in my, in my current uh, venture, again, I'm acting as COO in a robotics company and working with a seasoned plastic surgeon, 20 year plastic surgeon. And, and, you know, he's got all the right mix of, of what I'm looking for in a, in a business partner at the moment. Oh, brilliant. Um, if you were to start that business again, four years ago, what would you bring to the table now? Uh, I mean, now I think, I think I would ask a lot more questions up front rather than, you know, 
take six months to learn why I should be asking that question. Mm-hmm. Um, and I would probably do a very deep dissection of what was really trying to be achieved. And, mm-hmm. and it comes down to those fundamental questions of what problem are you trying to solve? Mm-hmm. What value are you adding and who's going to pay for what you're doing? Yeah, it sounds very textbook, but it's in in the end that's the reality of business, right? We have to be having a textbook because it applies to everyone. It does, yeah, but it's just the same thing everyone repeats, and I think people need to listen um, from a value proposition what? perspective. It's the it's important to pro- provide value, yes, but how much value are you actually providing? Um, there's an episode. Um, it's actually, a guy out of Brisbane, his name's Philip Knoll. May have tried it across him before in the past, but he told the yep. story on a podcast about a year ago and he was talking about, uh, yes, there might be a big prob- a problem that you want to solve. An example of a problem could be toothpaste he, he referred to, which I remember, never forget this story. Everyone has the problem of can't get the end of the toothpaste out of the tooth tube. There's always a little bit left, but is that yep. a big enough problem to solve and how much value you're adding by solving that problem? Um, and sometimes, yes, we might perceive that we're going to add value, but is it a big enough problem to solve or is there enough value that people are going to pay for it? Um, yeah, so we do need to consider that on the scale of that level really as well. You, you do. And, and, you know, the flip side of that is try to change every to boil the ocean and try to change every yeah. tube of toothpaste out on the market. And, and yeah. you know, that's another strategy that may yeah. not work. So yeah. I agree. Finding mm-hmm. that balance mm-hmm. um, is important. And I think... Um, <laughs> You know, they're fundamental statements, but I think until you live them and mm. unfortunately you live the, frankly, the failure on your own skin, then you sort of say, oh, that's why, that's why yeah. that's important. And maybe <laughs> I should have uh, paid more attention to that at yeah. the beginning. Yeah. So moving a bit forward, what's exciting about the robotics um, projects business that you're in right now? Sure. So first off, just the, the vector and trajectory of robotics within mm. um, robotics, robotic assisted surgery, telerobotics, uh, COVID has certainly accelerated. Um mm-hmm. You know, both of those domains, I think that they're certainly going to be in the future. So I think that playing in the playing in the space of a market that is uh, only growing is it makes things a lot easier. Mm. Um, there's some fundamental questions and fundamental problems with uh, robotic assisted surgery that um, I don't think are being addressed in the marketplace right now. So I think that there's a real opportunity for um, the patented technology that we're working with to, um, to potentially slide in and, and just make a lot of sense. Uh, for surgeons across the globe. Um, again, I mentioned that, you know, my business partner, he's a seasoned, uh, uh, highly educated, highly experienced uh, plastic surgeon. And he actually created the technology after dealing with the problem for 20 years. And so he actually did something about it, went mm-hmm. out and, and invented a uh, invented a technical solution, got a patent on it. Uh, we have another patent that's pending. So from an IP perspective, uh, you know, it's an, it's an interesting portfolio to be involved in. Mm. And, um, you know, that type of, that type of story, I mean, I didn't, I haven't talked at all about the story of, 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 you know, why you start a business. And to some extent, I'm a little, a little cynical about like how, how much a, a founder's story matters with, with funding a business, but I get it. And I, I get, you know, the importance of it, but from an involvement and time perspective, um, to be involved with somebody that's as knowledgeable and experienced as uh, my business partner and to know that he actually lived the problem long enough to solve it, um, to me, tells me it's a real problem, first of all, and uh, that I think he's done a good job of, of um, figuring out how to solve the problem. So my role is to kind of help him commercialize the IP that he's uh, created. Uh, we're, we're kind of actively looking to uh, partner in co-development. Mm-hmm. Um 
uh, or licensing uh, engagements. And so there's a lot of fun reaching out to businesses and trying to figure out um, how to get the business up on its feet. So mm. there's, there's a lot of meat on the bone and, and um, it's enough to kind of uh, soften the blow a little bit coming off of, uh, coming off of a heavy loss. <laughs> it's a different starting point and makes it probably more, a bit more exciting as well. Yeah. I think, I think that the, the first, you know, the, the imaging business, um, similarly, it was a, a good starting point to be in because it was interesting for the reasons of having that, that four year long conversation, but to have things a little bit more, um, a little bit more robust and kind of gelled together and to now have it more, let's take this to the last line here and, and, and find somebody that that's really going to get behind this product and, and, push it into the real world. And I mean, there's always, you know, there's financial goals, of course, to, to all the businesses, but at the end of the day, that that's not what drives you, right? It's, it's knowing that you are getting behind something that's impacting the world and, um, and that you believe in actually seeing it enter into the world and, and kind of affect change. So to me, I would love to see our product on robotic surgery platforms in the future and, and maybe even become standard to care. Um, and I think that we have actually a, a pretty good shot at, at that happening. Yeah, it is. I think, you know, it's when people look at it, if you're just financially driven by a business, that's the easiest way to actually fail because um, it's never going to be easy in business. Uh, you need to have a bit more behind you to actually understand, all right, why are you doing this? What's it, what you, what's the value you think you're bringing to the table? And the end outcome, if it's just financial, it can be a little bit hard to stick that journey if you're going through the ebbs and flows of what businesses look like, that roller coaster ride. So I um, agree that you need to stand in a, in a, a place where you're actually feeling what the benefit could be, seeing it, envisaging it, and striving for the benefit rather than the financial outcomes, because they will come if you deliver the value they perceive throughout the business that you set up. So um, exciting time. Yeah. Yeah. That seems pretty yep. new, pretty raw. Um, what's the uh, plans for the next six to 12 months in, in that business? Well, so so we actually just started in 2021. Uh, officially, the, the the company started. It's called Plasbotics. Uh, just started in 2021. Yeah. Um, we've applied for some non-diluting non-dilutive funding. So going back to what I said before, yeah. uh, establishing funding early was actually one of my key priorities, so that we didn't run into issues. Mm -hmm. um, ideally, we will receive some funding. Uh, actually, literally any day could hear um, whether that's the case. But the plan is um, we have a functional prototype. The plan is actually to get it into preclinical testing on uh, porcine models, pig models. And uh, we have a business uh, partner to do that with and eventually to actually get the product tested in humans and then to start um, you know, trying to form those strategic partnerships. We do actually already have some discussions with the large uh, Japanese manufacturer that, that we're exploring. Um, so I think, you know, from my perspective, it's building again, as much value, putting as much value into the business as possible, um, and then seeking partners that can really carry it to the next level of growth. Mm. Um, and I would love to see in the next six to 12, 12 months, um, the product being tested uh, first in, uh, in animal studies and then making its way into human, human studies, Not brilliant. which is a part of the normal life cycle yeah. of, of mm. devices. It's very different to any other SaaS product, like you said. Earlier. It is, yeah. You don't just throw it up on the web and buy. Yeah, look, I mean, so, yes. Well, I was just going to say some of the some of that's that's a well trodden path for for medical devices. The other, the other thing about this particular venture is that it it goes more to my fundamentals as a as a medical device professional, and so I think that I I can kind of I'm a little bit more in my own natural wheelhouse. Um, 
but yeah, I think as you, as you start to commercialize an actual medical product, it's a very long process and it's, it's long for a reason. Uh, but you, there are, there are necessary stops along the way in testing the product in animals and then, you know, progressively introducing more risk and, and making sure that the benefits outweigh the risks as you move towards humans. Mm-hmm. And eventually, you know, you get regulatory approvals and it can make its way into the market. How long might it take in reality? Starting point 2021 being actually used with on human surgeries. How long will they expect? Some de- devices can take six to 10 years. Well, I, I mean, to actually well, make their way. And that's, that's a refined product to, to, to kind of be used in humans, um, that's on the consumer end, mm-hmm. you know, some, some products can, can certainly be accelerated. It depends on, it depends on what the product is doing and how much risks it introduced to the patient. Okay. So mm-hmm. there are different classifications of regulation, uh, riskier products obviously take longer to, mm-hmm. to be fully vetted. Um, and, and part of that, again, is you need time and data to demonstrate, okay, this is a safe product. It's been de-risked. Um, so a lot of it's by design, but yeah, it's not a it's not a fast process, and I again I, I many times think I should have gone into like a direct to consumer, you know, <laughs> software application or SaaS product that can be spun up in six months and pushed out, and then mm-hmm. you know let the market take it from there. Mm-hmm. Um, very different business model altogether. Completely, but I think the one advantage of being in that space is it takes you six to ten years to get the product into market um, if it's patented and actually is adding value. You set a nice little moat up for yourself as a business as well. In the world of SaaS, anyone can copy paste um, some features right. and functions and uh, can look alike for like pretty quickly. So there is the, the added value of that heavy investment in early stages, but you're going to need a clear funding pathway as well. You can't just bootstrap that. I don't imagine you could. But how do you sort of set up the funding pathway with good partners in that model? If you're hitting those goals along the way and you're progressively clearing every check and balance that you need to, your confidence will go up on the business and how successful it's going to be as well. So you're, and that will convey to investors as well. Mm. Um, So certainly, if you see if you reach certain milestones, I mean that's exactly right. That if you if you demonstrate that the product actually works, that it's safe, you're going to have an easier time raising capital. Um, Mm. You're right though that you know the the first first uh, mover advantage or, or first to market advantage, you know, you can make a great product in the consumer space and then you can have one feature that doesn't quite work right. And that's enough of an angle for competitors to come in and say, I'm going to basically replicate what you've done, but do that one feature better. Mm. And, you know, you almost disrupt yourself because you didn't develop it properly. So um, it's it's a little bit different in, in med device. The, the difference is also though that there are uh, incumbent um, large corporations that it's two-sided. You can move faster as a startup, but you also can't compete with the like economies of scale of those large businesses and, and the sales distribution and just the manpower. So um, those companies that all have their own version of Skunk Works can quickly spin up something similar, but different enough. And interestingly, I've been in meetings uh, at, at notable companies that have... Um, they will take materials, for instance, and they'll hire chemical engineers to reverse engineer the molecular structure of materials, but make it just different enough that it can go around a patent. So there's there's all kinds of clever ways to kind of design mm-hmm. products and get around the market. Um, but that's part of what makes it fun as well. Mm-hmm. And they've got the money to do that as well. They do. Yeah. And it's in their interest to enter into certain markets that you've now opened up if you were, if you were mm-hmm. first to the market. If anyone um, is out there listening that's um, – 
it's maybe medical by background wants to head into this space um what has concepts ideas where do they start what are they what what's the first point of call for them generally uh, well, certainly here, here's a shameless plug. I mean, I'm always open to, to um, connect with uh, medical founders that are interested in innovation. Uh, my uh, website is uh, www.bioingenuity.com and my email is solutions at bioingenuity.com. Um, look, there are, there are a number of different um, consultants like myself that work across the healthcare uh, spectrum, working with subject matter experts, working with business folks. Um, and so on. There's also innovation groups. Um, I'm actually the Brisbane chapter leader of the Society of Physician Entrepreneurs. So there, there is a SOAP chapter in many cities uh, in the United States and around the globe. Um, and so that's a way to actually connect in within your own local ecosystem with other like-minded um, healthcare innovators. Um, so I think that getting involved and, and networking and reaching out to um, folks that can potentially connect you in uh, is always worthwhile. Um, and I have many, many interesting conversations e each week with, um, you know, clinicians similar to, to my current business partner that have endured problems and they're trying to trying to solve them to make healthcare better. Oh, brilliant, Mark. Thank you for sharing. Thank you for coming on the DevReady podcast. Really appreciate the time. And let's check in six, 12 months. I'd love to hear how the robotic project is kick, kicking along and um, all thing, all fingers crossed that uh, it goes in the direction that you're interested in. But it sounds like it's, um, is it software-based or is it hardware-based? This it, It's a, a hardware-based, yeah. yeah, it's a yeah. surgical instrument, yeah. uh, but we oh. are exploring the user side of it, the okay. user console and software-based and even data Got analytics it. and intelligence. Yeah, so there's a cool bit of complexity throughout that whole piece, I would imagine. Yeah, good luck with it all. That's and, right. Uh, thanks for sharing the wins and the failures because I think there's plenty of benefit for people listening in to understand what might not have got right. Some of the key things that I sort of took away from this is um, it seemed like the business that you you were in four years ago was coming at it from an angle of there might be something we could do um, rather than having a core problem to solve um, already. So it was more of that some design thinking sort of starting point. That's what it felt like when you described it. Um, and then it sort of seems like it trailed down the fact of maybe generating revenue in an area that wasn't really focused or product focused. It was more maybe some consultative revenue. That's how I sort of gar grasped it. Um, in the end, it's, it's a good place to start, but yeah. And the other thing was bootstrapping. Was, it was bootstrapped forever. Um, and that yep. was maybe the founder's decision to, to want to hold on to equity or just want to ownership or controlling interest. I'm not quite sure, but um, I think we would have been more open. It's, um, what I've realized is some people that really succeed well, uh, they partner, they're willing to bring other people onto the journey, um, whether it be investors, industry partners, whatever it might be, because in the end, uh, if you want to make a big difference, you can't do it alone. And um, I, I think um, there's plenty in that today. So thank you for sharing. Really appreciate your time, Mark. Thank you. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Anthony, Andrew, a uh, real pleasure to be here and happy to check back in. And, yeah. and uh, again, to connect with any of your, your listeners. So I appreciate the time. I think about checking every couple of years too. <laughs> All right, that <laughs> works. Your timeline. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'll see you in ten years. Yeah. <laughs> right, thank you. Thanks. All right. Thanks very All much. Right.